So we're going to be starting a new series today, and we're going to be calling it, it's just called Colossians. Colossians. We're going to be going through the book of Colossians. And I just want to give just an introduction today, and just we're going to go through Paul's introductory remarks. But last night, I commented on a pastor friend's post of mine on Instagram, and here's the reply I got, okay? I, I DM'd him to one of his stories, and this is the reply I got. Is it lawful to smoke on the Sabbath? Ha ha. It's never too late to start. So today, we begin a new series in the book of Colossians. And we're going to be stepping into a, a new series, we're going through the letter that, that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. And we're going to need to do a little bit of the hard work of studying God's Word. How many of you know God didn't call us just to read God's Word? He called us to study it, to show ourselves approved. And there's some questions that we need to ask before we get too far ahead of ourselves. It's important to establish a sense of context anytime you begin a new book of the Bible. It's important to understand the context as you discover what the author's trying to say and specifically to the audience that they're saying it to. And that's how we, that's how we discover original intention of what was being written. Context is so important. For many, for many of you, you're wondering what was meant by smoking on the Sabbath and why would I start, right? Context is important. Just, just so you know, we're talking about smoking pork butt on the barbecue, all right? Context is important. It's important to have context around what's being said. So Paul, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, do your best to present yourself as God, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. So what questions do we need to ask when we begin to unpack the scripture? What do we need to be asking when we're unpacking and studying the scripture? Because we all carry our own biases right? We all carry our own point of view, our own filter to Scripture. And so we need to be careful that we don't apply just our filter, but we understand what the author was trying to say and what the audience was hearing. So if you're taking notes, write this down. This is, this is just sort of good study 101, all right? Study 101. These are just some good questions to ask anytime you pick up the Scriptures and begin reading a new book of Scripture. Who? Who? Who's writing it? So in other words, who's the author? And then second, who are they writing it to? In other words, who's the audience? Who's the author and who's the audience? The second question we want to ask is where? Where in historical time is this? We want to talk where, where in time. And then we also want to ask where geographically? What's going on? What, where is this geographically? So we want to ask where as, as in the place. The third question we want to ask is what? What are the circumstances for both the author and the recipients? What are the circumstances of both the author and the recipients? And, and when this work is done, then we can begin asking the why and the what's being said. We can begin to dig into the theology of what's going on, but not before. If we don't understand these previous questions, we can begin to misconstrue the why. We can begin to misconstrue what's trying to be said by the author. And so that's, this is important. It's the hard work 
of context. N.T. Wright, he writes this in his introduction to the book of Colossians. He says, We cannot merely take Paul's composition apart and put its bits into other compositions of our own. In other words, we can't just take what we want from what Paul's saying and just apply it to our own way of looking at the world and the way of looking at our theology. We must listen to him in his own terms. That is when we will hear not only what he intended, but also perhaps unexpected overtones and echoes which fit our own context. In other words, we, we won't just hear what he's saying to the audience back then. We'll begin to hear the principles and the overtones that actually apply to us here now, right now, today, as we read and we hear God's Word. He goes on to say the historian's journey. Sorry, we must therefore make two journeys. The historian's journey, getting back to the original meaning, and the theologian's journey, or the preacher's journey. The responsibility under God of speaking to our contemporary church and world of what we have heard. So context is about hearing the original intention of the author and then translating that to go, okay, why does that matter for me today here, 21st century Powell River, Canada? So let's unpack some of the questions of context in order to take this journey together. And we're going to be taking this journey over several months as we just unpack and go through this letter to the Colossian church. And so let's ask who? Who's the author? The author, it's not really debated among theologians. The Paul identifies himself. Paul the apostle identifies himself as the author. And he, he actually talks a little bit about his own circumstances within the letter itself. And the audience is to the church in Colossae, the Colossian church. So where? The Colossians, Colossians was written by Paul while he was in prison. Paul's in prison when he writes this. And it's most likely during his imprisonment either in Ephesus or Caesarea or Rome. Paul went to prison a lot. And that's, that's not even all of them, but that's most likely. He was either in prison in Ephesus, Caesarea, or Rome. And the only reason he was in prison because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he ended up in prison so much. Colossae was a city that was found between the port cities of Laodicea, which is about 10 miles away, and Heropolis, which is another six miles past that. And here's what's interesting about Colossian, the Colossian uh, uh, community, is they were once a part of the major trade routes. But then Heropolis and Laodicea became much more strategic along the trade routes. And so here we find Paul writing to this church that in a community that's kind of got left behind, all right? And that's going to just play a little bit of a part. Kind of got left behind. They're no longer the major center of that trade route. By the time the third century comes, they're, they're actually uh, nothing. They, actually, Colossians, archaeologists haven't even really done any digging there. We, we don't even have too much archaeological evidence of, of what went on, the culture, all of that. Because it became such an insignificant place to Her, uh, Her, Heropolis and, and Laodicea. So what? What are the circumstances surrounding this letter? Well, here's an interesting little tidbit. Paul didn't plant this church. So I want you to just think about that. Paul did not plant this church. In fact, most historians and most theologians believe that Paul never even visited this church. Okay? 
So just keep that in mind as we, as we dig into this letter, because that's going to be important. Paul didn't plant it. Paul very likely didn't even visit this church. And knowing this is going to make his, his opening remarks that much more profound. And we're going to get to that soon. But also the church in Colossae was, was a fairly young church. It was much younger than the churches that Paul had planted over the years. It was a very young church. And so this is going to influence how Paul writes to them and how he instructs them. So now that we have a little bit of context, we have a little bit of a filter to kind of filter things through, let's dig into the opening verse, chapter 1 of Colossians, starting verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We're going to camp out here. There's not much to go on, but we're going to camp out here because we've done some of the hard work of context. And so it's going to bring alive a few of these opening statements that Paul makes to this young church that Paul has never met, that Paul has not had any interaction with. I want you to just think that through. Paul opens the letter by revealing his qualifications for writing to this young church and instructing them. He says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, Paul could have introduced himself a lot of different ways, right? So Paul is is the most prolific and experienced church planter of all the apostles. He, He could have introduced himself as the most prolific church planter of all the apostles. He could have talked about his great education. Paul was the most, out of all the apostles, Paul was the most qualified. Paul had the greatest education. You know, in our terms, Paul would have had like a triple doctorate. All right? Paul is brilliant. He's smart. He sat under the greatest mentors of that time. You know, Paul could have been like that person. You ever meet that person that has their doctorate degree? Or that person that has a title and they demand that you use it? You know what I'm talking about? You know that person? I knew a pastor who would get, he'd get so offended if you didn't refer to him as pastor so-and-so. All right? It was actually so extreme that he... He made his wife refer to him in public as pastor so-and-so. His wife would refer to him as pastor so-and-so in public. And so as a young pastor in ministry, just coming into ministry, I referred to him by his first name as much as I could. I know it's wrong, and I know it was immature. But I want you just to think about this, this context Paul has never met these guys. He's had no influence within the scope other than by extension of people in his teachings. He's had no influence, no relational influence. And yet he's writing them. And I want you to think about how the church might choose to respond. And the way that Paul does it is so profound because titles can become pretentious and excuse to rebel. Especially when the motive is to feel important, self-important, self-exalted. And Paul's pedigree and qualifications were out of this world. 
Yet Paul's introduction is so humble. Essentially, he says, I am Paul, an apostle. All right? In other words, I have authority and a God given right to be writing you and instructing you. Okay? That's essentially what he's saying. But the way that he reveals his qualification for being apostle is so full of humility. I'm an apostle because God willed it to be so. Not because I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Not because I have the greatest education among the apostles. Not because I'm the most prolific church planner of all time. No. I am an apostle because God willed it to be so. No other qualifications listed. Paul has the shortest resume you've ever seen. So why does this matter? It matters because the qualifications of the kingdom are found first and foremost in the will of God. The qualifications of the kingdom are found first and foremost simply in God willed it. God appointed it. God set you apart for such a time as this, for a purpose and for a plan, whatever that may be and whatever that looks like. Your primary qualification in Christ Jesus is God willed it to be so. That takes a lot away from us, doesn't it? That really puts us in a place where we can't help but understand the humility in which we need to walk. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, we need to be reminded that that our part to play in God's kingdom is, is found just primarily in this appointment and the will of God. Now before we go on, let's get something straight. Even though that is the primary starting point, there is still responsibility upon us to rise up to the call that God has placed on our lives, okay? It's not just that God willed it, and so we just walk in that. It's no. Paul writes to the Ephesians in 4.1, he says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice the call to rise to the calling, right? God doesn't wait for us to be ready. He calls us and he qualifies us through Jesus Christ. That's, that's Christianity 101. But then he takes us on a journey of rising to the calling, of being inspired by that calling that he has called us to and rising to the occasion. When we operate with this as our primary qualification, there's humility. And in that realization, we're inspired to rise to the level and the standard of the call. When I was in college, um, I was in my, I think it was my second semester, I was asked if I would apply to be an RA. Uh, For those of you that did dorm life, anybody do dorm life? Am I the only one that did dorm life? Oh, man. I got, okay, I got some dormers back here. Good. I got two people that are going to understand this illustration. But in my second semester, I was asked if I could be an RA. An RA was a resident assistant. RAs were kind of the, 
the people on the ground in the dorm that assisted the dean's office in just management of everything that was going on socially as well as taking care of dorm rooms and the building and facilities and all of that. And so first semester I was an RA and then the, the second semester they asked me if I'd be a lead RA. So for those of you that don't know me, let me introduce myself. If Lisa was here, my wife Lisa, one, another pastor here at Evangel, if she was here, I'd be able to point there and go, she's the rule follower. Um, actually, her, her grandpa, I don't know if she'll hate it if I say this, her grandpa actually would tell her, I feel sorry for you because you follow the rules too well. You don't, you don't live enough life. Like, her grandpa's like, I feel sorry for you that you're such a good kid. Me, on the other hand, I'm kind of the opposite of our relationship. Rules were made to be... <laughs> we're made to be manipulated and bent. And so, to be asked to be a, an RA was very much to uphold the standards and the rules of the college and the dorm life. So here's, here, here's, what, here's what was interesting about this whole season of my life, though, is all of a sudden, I started, like, keeping the rules. Because I was believed in to have this position of authority, and I began to structure my life and live a little bit differently in light of that. In fact, I remember one time, part of my role was I'd have to do dormant room inspections, so I was on the, uh, the second floor of the Gordon Lindsay Tower, which is a dormitory. It's 10 stories. 10 stories is an old Ramada hotel. And so I had about 13 rooms on my floor, and, so I, and there was about four guys per room. So you can imagine four young men per room, 13 rooms. It got a little gnarly. And so my role once a week is I had to do an inspection, a room inspection, so everybody knew that on Friday morning, have your room cleaned and ready to go because it's going to get inspected. And if you didn't pass inspection, you're going to get written up. And if you got written up, there's going to be some kind of, you'd have to serve in the cafeteria, you have to pick up garbage on the, on the campus. And there was some kind of consequence. And so I went next door, right next door was one of my best friends in college. And so I went into his room and me, the not rule follower for most of my life, started holding him to a standard. And I checked, and they just, it was, not, it was bad. And so I wrote them up. And he was so mad at me. So what did I do? I told him, tell you what, you can come into my room and you can inspect my room. Because I was like, I clean, I, I'm living up to a high, I've been cleaning, I've been. So then he comes in about five minutes later wearing a white glove. I don't know where in the world he got a white glove. And he started on door frames and the corn. He got on his knees crawling under our... So he found, he found some dust. And he found enough little situations that I ended up writing myself up. <laughs> what was brutal about being an RA is whatever the punishment was, RAs got double because the responsibilities. And so we got double. What I, so I spent six hours walking the campus that day picking up garbage. But the point is... When someone believes in you and gives you opportunity, it does something, doesn't it? It inspires you towards something greater. 
It inspires you to raise this standard in your own life. And when we begin to understand that God, the creator of the universe, looks upon you and has, says, I have a role for you to play in my kingdom. I have a call upon your life. It does something. When we truly come to terms with that and understand that our giftings and our talents and our qualifications and all of that are secondary and mean nothing to the call of God on a life, we begin to rise to the occasion. Now there's a second component to this greeting that we have to acknowledge. There's a second kind of process that's going on here. And by extension of the, the role that God called Paul to in the kingdom, he knows that he's qualified. He knows that he's been called to be a teacher and to bring correction and to bring guidance to this young church that he's never met. But this young church, by extension of that, this young church now has to make a decision, don't they? They have to make a decision. Am I going to heed this apostle? Are we going to listen to this guy? Are we going to give them the time of day? Do they hold on to Paul's teachings or do they reject them and just continue in their own way? You've got to remember, Paul didn't start this church. And as far as we know, he hasn't even visited this place. And last week, we talked about the importance of external truth, right? Having a source of external truth. That God is our external truth. That the Word of God is our target. And not the internal truths that we come up based on feeling or circumstance or experience. Because those are moving targets. The same is true. As much as that's true for an individual, the same is true for communities of faith. Communities of faith, they find safety by being a part of something bigger than just themselves. Last year, I had a great question posed to me after a sermon where we were talking about community of faith. We are talking about church and church life. And the question was essentially this. This is the question. Do you think independent communities of faith are wrong? In other words, do you think that independent churches are wrong? That was the question posed to me. All right? My answer was this. I don't think it begins necessarily as a question of right or wrong. It doesn't start as a question of right or wrong, but rather as a question of whether or not it's wise. Like so much of our Christian faith, it's not necessarily, is this right or is this wrong? Is this black or is this white? So often the question is, is it wise? Is it the wise thing to do? Even the apostles, they submitted to one another. This idea that the early church was just this, this organic movement that had no structure or organization, it's just not the case. That's not the reality. In Acts 15, we're given insight to this process and this sort of governance that kind of led the church about theological decisions around the conversion of the Gentiles. In Acts 15, you can turn there with me. There's reports given. There's opinions shared. There's a final decision made. And then there's a plan that's carried out by delegates sent out from this body of leadership. 
If you turn to Acts 15, we're just going to just read through this really quickly. This brought Paul and Barnabas. So, so Paul and Barnabas are arguing about what standards they need to uphold when it comes to Christian faith and the Jewish law. And so there's an argument that's arising. Do we, do we require that Gentiles that can get converted to Christianity, that they have to walk in the laws of the Jews? All right? And so Paul and Barnabas, they get into a sharp dispute and debate with them. This is verse 2. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed by that church, by that community of faith, along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the laws of Moses. Okay? So amongst this very mature set of believers, okay, these are the elders and the apostles of the church. There's a faction that's saying, no, they need to keep the law of Moses. And then verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And so Peter gets up and he talks about kind of what the, 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 the vision that he had. And so let's just jump to verse 12. The whole assembly became quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So they're reporting. They're giving eyewitness account of what's going on. Verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in, in agreement with this, as it is written. And James goes on to begin to recite the Old Testament. And, and I want you to notice something. James returns to the Old Testament scriptures as a place of authority. He, he doesn't just share his opinion. He doesn't just listen to everything going on and go, okay, Based on what's all being said, here's my opinion about this matter. No, he goes back to a place of authority. He goes back to a place where he can come under something of authority. And he goes back to the Old Testament. Verse 19, let's jump to 19. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The council's letter to the Gentiles' believers. And then verse 22, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose among themselves their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. This sounds very organized. This sounds like Paul, the most prolific apostle, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, the one who has even to this day led most believers into an understanding of what was the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled and completed and how we operate and how we live. Paul came under authority. He knew it was important to come under authority, and so they came under authority. James writes in James 3, 1, 
He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think Paul understood the responsibility and the call that he had, and so he came under. There's a great responsibility among those who teach, and thus a greater level of strictness. Today, we see an attack, don't we? We see an attack on authority in today's culture. I mean, I, I have a brother-in-law who's, who's RCMP. Um, it's, like a, it's like a bad time in culture to become a police officer, right? Because authority figures are just, in general, looked down. We, we look down upon authority within government, within, within economy, within industry. There's this, there's this sort of anarchist sort of tearing down of everything that looks like authority, that looks like a hierarchy, that looks like... And this ideology, it can make its way into the public, from the public square into the church. And like the Colossians, we, we have a decision to make. Are, are, are we going to submit ourselves to the authority of Paul the Apostle as he writes these words to the Colossians? Are we going to submit to the authority of God's Word, inspired by the Spirit of God. We, we have to begin to ask ourselves these questions and not allow the culture and the circumstances of this world to begin to affect how we look at authority. Because much of this Christian faith involves two words, authority and submission. And those are both not popular words in our culture today. And we have to begin to ask ourselves, are we going to walk in this and the authority of God's word is inspired by the Spirit. This year we celebrate the centennial birthday of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. 100 years. 100 years in Canada. And I'm so glad that we are a part of that fellowship. If you do not know, if you're visiting with us and you don't know, Evangel Church is a part of that fellowship of autonomous churches coming together with as like-minded under the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I'm so glad that my credentials are not self-given. I really am. I'm glad that I didn't sit down at my computer and write up the most Reverend Lucas Mitchell and made a nice certificate for myself and made it look pretty and put it in a frame, put it up in my office and peddled myself off as a pastor. I'm so glad that I'm a part of something bigger than myself because there's safety in that. There's accountability in that. There's a, there's a coming under of authority in that. And if we begin to go awry as a church, we're a part of a fellowship that's going to hold us accountable to the truth of God's Word. If I begin to go awry in my living and in my life, I have those that will come and talk with me and say, here's the deal, you need to change or you're not going to be able to do what you do anymore. There's a safety in that. There's, a, there's something about coming under authority, something about submitting to the authority that God has placed in our lives. King Solomon, he says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. That's Proverbs eleven fourteen. In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. There's something profound about being part of something bigger than yourself lending perspective and so this young church the colossian church has to ask themselves a question 
are we going to come under the teaching of this man named Paul? Before they even get into the rest of the letter, they have to ask themselves that question. Because the rest of the letter doesn't matter if the answer is no. If the answer is no, the rest doesn't matter. But are we willing to come under authority? Are we willing to come under? And here's the beauty of the authority structures of the kingdom. And I want you to get this. Because sometimes we think hierarchy, we think pyramid when we think of authority. Here's the beauty. Jesus came to show us what true authority looks like. Jesus walked in perfect authority. And yet Jesus flipped the pyramid upside down. And Jesus served. Jesus served the most broken of society. Jesus came and served. He walked in perfect authority. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our work. But he came. When he came, he showed us a better way. He came and he served. When God calls us to something, when God places a, a purpose in your life, that purpose is there so that you can come under and serve those that you've been called to. With the confidence of authority, walking in authority, walking in that call, rising to the occasion. But the authority structures of the kingdom are upside down. I'm going to ask the worship team to come as we close. But you have been called and released to operate in your calling, every single one of you. All of you have a spot and a place and an assignment and a role to play in the kingdom of God. You've each been given levels of authority and responsibility in the kingdom. And the important thing to remember is the primary qualification for that. Whatever that looks like, the primary qualification is simply this. God willed it. God willed it. God willed it. God willed it. Before we get too caught up in thinking of ourselves as high and mighty, God willed it. God willed it. God willed it. But because you know that you're unqualified, I mean, I, I, I sit up here every Sunday and I am painfully aware. I am painfully aware of how unqualified I am to be a teacher of Scripture and to, and to stand before you and preach the Word of God. But God willed it. But God willed it. But God willed it. And so it inspires me. It inspires me every day to begin to live better. To walk worthy of the calling in Christ Jesus. God's called you. He's called you. Walk worthy. Be inspired by that calling. And walk worthy of the calling in Jesus. And then the final question is, do we recognize authority? In a culture, in a culture where it's not popular, can I, can I just say this? In a town where it's not popular, 
Can I, can I say that? Is that okay? I'm just being real with you guys. Like, there, there is. There, 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 there's, a, there's a very sort of anti-establishment sentiment. Culture, as it were. The question is, are we willing to come under authority? Are we willing to come under the word of God as the ultimate authority for our lives? Are we willing to come under the teachings of the apostles? And so, Lord God, we just, we just come before you today. We thank you for scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us kind of helpless and hapless within this faith. But, Lord, you gave us instructions through your servants, through those that by your will you appointed to be apostles and teachers and pastors and prophets and those that would come alongside the local church. Lord, we thank you for your word that speaks life to us that is living and active as we partner with the Spirit of God. Lord, we thank you for the call that you placed on every single person's life. Lord, would you cause us to be inspired by that call, to re-engage that call, and to live worthy of that call. We thank you for what you're doing in this church, in this community. We thank you, Lord God, for those that are sick among us. For some of us, that call is to care for the sick, come alongside, to pray, to be an encouragement. Lord, just, I, I just pray release in that call right now in Jesus' name. So we thank you, Lord. that we can come under the King of kings and the Lord of lords and find perfect safety there. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't we stand together as we just close in a song of worship.